Good morning. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. If you're watching online, glad you're joining us, and uh, those of you downstairs at F3 as well. Um, you know, someone once said that, uh, I, I don't know if it's true or not, I don't know how they come up with this, but that the average person spends 50% of their waking hours thinking about money or material things. Again, I don't know how they come up with that, but uh, it's probably safe to say that we, uh, we think about things like that probably more than we think we think about those things. Um, Jesus thought about those things. Uh, if you go through the Gospels, uh, about a third of the teachings of Jesus that are recorded in the Gospels are in parabolic um, um, statements, uh, uh, parables. And over a third of the parables that Jesus taught had to do with money and, and stewardship, financial things. So he, it was on his mind a lot. Some wag put it that uh, uh, for Jesus, money mattered because money matters, and it does. The Apostle Paul, very similar. A lot of teachings in the New Testament related to uh, finances and, and, and money. And one little phrase that we're going to look at this morning uh, in Romans chapter 13 is an example of that. Romans chapter 13, verse 8, Paul says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. The NIV says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Owe nothing to anyone. One of the greatest uh, testimonies I think a Christian can give uh, the, the watching world, the unsaved world, is to pay your, pay your bills. Pay your bills on time. Pay, pay your debts. Don't be in debt. Do you owe someone some money? The Apostle Paul would say, well, pay it off. Um, are you making your payments on time? Uh, make sure you do. Owe nothing to anyone. And I don't think um, it's a command that necessarily forbids Christians buying homes and cars. And it, it, the whole point is make your obligations on time. Owe nothing to anyone except to love them. Uh, by the way, uh, starting in September, we are once again going to have a little opportunity to pro promote our biblical training center, but the fan financial peace class is starting up again. Great way to, uh, to learn how to get out of debt and um, be financially uh, wise so that you can have more to give to the Lord's work. Um, so I would encourage you to consider the financial peace class that's coming up. But verse 8, take your Bibles, turn with me to that chapter 13, verse uh, 8 of Romans. Chapter 13, verse 8 is saying a lot more than just don't be in debt to anyone. In fact, it's more of a probably more of a hook that Paul has to say to get us to his real thought, which is the last phrase. Pay what is due, but pay more than what is due. Owe no man anything but to love them. Agape love. Agape love, that self-sacrificing love, sees a need in someone else, says, how can I meet that need? It might cost me something, but I care about this person, what can I do to meet that need? Agape love. It's the one debt that a person must pay every day and continue 
to keep on paying. It's as real an obligation as back in verse 7 when he said, render to all that is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom is due, fear to whom fear is due, honor to whom honor is due. Owe no man anything but love them. It's as real an obligation as it is to pay our taxes, to pay what we owe people. Paul is saying, don't just pay back the 10 bucks you owe somebody. Love them. Think out ways how you can minister grace and compassion and mercy to someone because we owe that to them, <laughs> to love them. Leon Morris in his commentary put it this way, we can never say, I have done all the loving I need to do. This is because love is a permanent obligation, a debt that is impossible to discharge. We are to have the same concern, the same care, preservation, respect um, for our neighbor as we are for ourselves. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. And then Paul says, because when you do this, you have, he says, fulfilled the law. Now, what did he mean by that? You have fulfilled the law. Well, we keep reading verse 9, 9 and 10. He says, for this, these commands, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. If there's any other commandment, it is summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10 says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the, the fulfillment of the law. The point is, if love is the mainspring of, of a person's soul, if, if love is, a, is the focal point of one's motive and attitude of the heart, um, you, you've fulfilled the entire uh, commandments of God, what, what, what the heart of God is for his people. In the Old Testament, it was summed up in those Ten Commandments. Love God and love others. The first four commandments, love God. The next six commandments, the horizontal um, love others. And it's all summed up, Jesus said, in that word love. The Apostle Paul, Galatians chapter 5, it can all be summed up in that word love. The heart of God is love. And what he requires of his people is love. It's all summed up in that agape love. It's what Augustine is reported to have said, um, love God and live as you please. Love God and live as you please. Now, that's kind of what makes me a little nervous to hear that, but what he was saying is that um, our lifestyle flows out of uh, our passion, our, uh, who we love, what we love. It, it, it controls our life. And if we love God, then flowing out of that heart of love is a life that is going to honor him. Love God and Go ahead and live as you please, because as we, what we please to do will be out of an outflow of our heart and love for God. It's the supreme Christian virtue, is it not? 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, and the greatest of these is, is love. It sees a, a need in someone else and is willing to meet that need, even if it costs us, uh, ourselves something. It's that unconditional love. Now, I, I, I'll come back to this, but one thing I do want to clarify, 
We talked about it in Romans chapter 8, verse 4. Romans chapter 8, verse 4 says, The requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. The requirement of the law. All the law is summed up in that word love. Owe nothing to anyone. Come on, folks, let's get out of debt. <laughs> if you owe somebody, pay it off. That's the point. But we owe someone far more than just that 10 bucks or that 50 bucks or that 5,000 bucks. We owe them love. The requirement of the law is love, but it can't happen if we're walking, he says in verse 8, uh, chapter 8, verse 4, according to our own strength, according to our own efforts. It's, it's through the power of the Holy Spirit. The requirement of the law is fulfilled in us as we walk according to the power of the Spirit. I'll get back to that in just a moment. So this is the answer to the question of how we are to relate to human beings on this planet. Agape love, whether friend or foe, we can summarize the entire teaching of the Scripture of our responsibility towards one another, not just within the body of Christ, but even to the world. God so loved the world. It can all be summed up in that word love, agape love. The greatest of these is love. It always comes down to that. In the previous couple sermons, back in chapter 12, we saw a whole list of, um, of challenges for the follower of Jesus Christ. Exhortations, bless those who persecute, bless and curse not, be humble in spirit, associate with the lowly, never pay back evil for evil to anyone, be at peace with all men, as far as it's in your area of responsibility, as far as you can control it, be at peace with all men. Never take revenge. Overcome evil with good. Be subject to governing authorities, we saw the last couple of weeks. And now today, never be in debt to anyone. These are exhortations for God's people, the church of Jesus Christ. As we live as strangers in this land that is not our own, we're citizens of heaven. If you know Jesus as your personal Savior, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. I've got a home in heaven. That's my identity. That's my real address. That's my home. It's, it's heaven. But while I'm here on earth as a citizen of this earth, I have some responsibilities. And it's summed up in love. It's summarized in love. The attitude of the heart, it sees a need in someone else and and responds to that need with self-sacrificing giving. How can I help you? And the, the greatest need that a person has, of course, the greatest need a person has is, is the need to know Jesus. That's the greatest need a person has, to have a personal relationship with the living God. We must never lose sight of the fact that that person you may be living with or the, the neighbor next door to you or the co-worker in the office cubicle near you or that student in the desk near you or that teacher or that politician, uh, they need Jesus. The abortion doctor needs Jesus. The left-wing anarchist needs Jesus. 
The right-wing belligerent one needs Jesus. The homosexual needs Jesus. The transgender student struggling with this gender dysphoria needs Jesus. Our neighbor needs Jesus. Your coworker needs Jesus. That's the bottom line need that a person has in their soul. And it doesn't mean that we ignore sin or, or the lies that are being spread in our world today. Of course not. But it means that the primary focal point of our interactions with people have to be centered around where do they stand with the living God? People need Jesus. Will my words, will my actions hinder this person that I'm engaging with in any way? Will it, will it hinder them in seeing who Jesus is? We've been reminded over the past couple sermons that we are citizens of heaven, living as ambassadors here on earth. Dennis last week referred to 2 Corinthians 5 as ambassadors of Christ. That's who we are. As if we're in the world, begging the world, be reconciled to God. Proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. People need the Lord. I don't know about you, but I'm getting sick and tired of how evangelical Christians are talking all over the stuff that's going on in this world, all up in arms. Look, I don't like socialism any more than you do or communism. But the people who are purporting that or focusing that or wanting to dump it on us as a nation need Jesus. I don't like the stuff that's going on in public school situations any more than the next evangelical Christians. But you know what that school board needs? They need Jesus. It doesn't mean we don't stand up for truth and we sweep sin under the carpet. But by George, we as evangelical Christians got to start thinking about how my words and what I put on Facebook and what I say in the public arena, how is it affecting a person in their view of who Jesus Christ is? Come on, Christians, wake up! We are citizens of heaven. <laughs> Let's get smart and figure out how we can engage people with the good news of Jesus Christ, using the events of the day to transfer our discussions to point them to Jesus. Because you see, we owe it to them. Owe no man anything but to love them. The world is going to hell in a handbasket real fast. People need Jesus. And that's what has to be communicated. We, we can get all up in arms about, um, what are the statistics of the COVID deaths? 600-some thousand people? Well, we know that's not true. They have fudged those numbers. Maybe they have, maybe they haven't. You know what the conversation should be? If you were one of those statistics, where would you end up in eternity? See, we've got to transfer, we've got to talk to people about Jesus. We've got to get smart. We, we've got to move from this plane of the, of the temporal now and and, and transfer it and, and bridge it to the eternal. Because we owe it to people to love them. 
And it doesn't excuse sin. It doesn't ignore sin. It just says that God's people need to be a little bit smarter, maybe work a little bit harder to help point people to the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, what's the incentive to do that? Well, Paul gives it to us starting in verse 11. Look what he says in verse 11 of chapter 13. Do this, he says, love people, do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Do this, act this way, engage the world this way, knowing the time. What time? Well, the, the time to be awakened from sleep. Sleep implies spiritual lethargy, spiritual sluggishness. It is the, the Christian who gets caught up in the things of the world, gets so embroiled in the things of the world, gets sucked into the things of the world, that that begins to occupy the predominant time in our thinking. Wake up, the Apostle Paul is saying. Be awakened from sleep. Being awakened means to have spiritual alertness, readiness. You know who the most woke culture should be in our society today? Bible-believing Christians awoke to the spiritual realities that there's a God in heaven who so loves this broken, hurting world. He sent his son to die. And we are bearers of that good news. And we are to beg the world be reconciled to God. Not go out there and smash people and argue with people and, 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 and foist our our right and proper opinions upon people. Wake up, Paul says, from the spiritual slumber that Christians can fall into because we're so caught up in the mess of the world. And why? Why should we live a woke life, spiritually speaking? Look at the last part of verse 11. For salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. We've talked about this many times, but the idea of salvation, that word salvation, has multiple different connotations to it. We talk about being delivered, being saved from the penalty of sin. That's kind of a past idea. The moment we trust Christ as our Savior... Praise God, our, our sins are forgiven. They're, they're, they're paid for at the cross and it becomes ours. The past aspect of, of deliverance, of salvation. If you are here this morning and you're not sure where you spend, will spend eternity, there's good news and that is that Jesus came to this earth 2,000 years ago to pay for your sins. He died on the cross. He took our sin upon himself and he was judged by his father. The wrath of God fell upon his son. He who knew no sin became sin. He took our sin upon himself and he died in our place. Three days later, he rose again and he offers a free gift to anybody who would receive it. We can be saved, we can be delivered from the penalty of sin by simple faith in Jesus Christ. 
transferring our trust off of ourselves, off of our religion, off of all our good works, and put them on Christ and Christ alone. But there's another aspect of the concept of salvation, deliverance. So there's a present reality. We are being saved. Being saved from what? Well, from the, the power of sin, the daily struggles that we have. And, and as we appropriate the power of Christ within us through his Holy Spirit, we find deliverance. We find salvation. We find freedom from the very power of sin that reigns in our life as well as the wrath of God, the disciplined hand of God on his children. We are set free from that. The wrath of God, Romans chapter 1, is displayed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. Even God's people, the Heavenly Father, will discipline us. We need to be delivered. We need to be saved from the disciplined hand of the Father by walking according to his strength, his power. We can be delivered in the moment-by-moment -moment life as we live it here on this earth. There's a past idea, there's a present idea, and there's a future idea of salvation, of deliverance. From the very presence of sin when Jesus Christ returns, where this body of sin will be done away with and we receive a, a new resurrected body that is conformed into his image. Paul is referring to that, that future deliverance, our Salvation is closer today than it has ever been. Now, let me add some things to this. Don't forget what Paul said in Romans chapter 7, O wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Uh, Paul struggled with his own sin, his own flesh. Who will set me free from this body of sin? Paul, in Romans chapter 7, talked about, I, you know, he said, I, I, I struggle with coveting. Makes perfectly good sense. I mean, Paul was a rising star in Judaism, probably from a wealthy family. Saul of Tarsus, the region of Cilicia, was a major trade route of the Roman Empire. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, uh, uh, being trained and sent off to Jerusalem to be trained under the, the top Judaistic trainers, uh, Gamaliel. The man had means. He was a rising star. Whatever he wanted, he probably could get as a young man. And then on the road to Damascus, he met Jesus, and all that changed. He has to go become a tent maker. He's got to fend for himself. I don't want to put anybody out, he said. I'm going to, I'll take care of my own finances. You think that Paul might have had a little struggle once in a while with coveting? Looking at some of the other apostles and thinking, doggone it, why did I give all that up? I could have had that. Paul admitted that. In fact, he said, the good I want to do, I don't do. I'm doing the very thing I hate. I don't want to act this way, but uh, I just find sometimes there's this pull in my, my, my life to, to live out in a sinful way. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from this body of death? The real inner Paul, we've studied this in Romans 6, 7, and 8, was alive to Christ. It was new, his new creation, regenerated Born again, but it was in an earth suit of sin, this body of death. Who will set me free from it? Well, there was good news. And in the next chapter, chapter 8, Paul said this, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. 
And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the, the redemption, the setting free of our body. For in hope we've been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Wait eagerly for what? The, the redemption of my body. I've got to get rid of this old earth suit, put on my, my new resurrected body. I will be free from all those temptations, from all those allurements, from all those sinful desires. What Paul is saying in chapter 13, verse 11, is that this salvation, this deliverance is closer today than it has ever been. The hour is near. Verse 12, the night is almost gone and the day is near. The night is almost over, the day is at hand. The coming of the Lord is near. The glorious return of the Lord and our freedom totally from sin. We're never again can, would we be able to say, oh, wretched man that I am, we'll be set free from that. Salvation is nearer today than it has ever been. Folks, the day is coming. The night is almost gone. That's good news. This world of darkness, it's almost over. Now, Paul said that 2,000 years ago. And if it was true 2,000 years ago, folks, are you looking up? Because the night is almost over. The day is almost here. So go out and love people. Don't get embroiled in the things of this world. Love people because the, the night is almost over. The, the, the marathon of life, it's, it's, we're down to the 100-yard dash, folks. It's almost over. <laughs> so let's live our life in a compelling way. It's summed up by the word love. Paul is saying, let's take our Christian life seriously. Because Jesus is coming again. He's almost here. I, you, if you've been here any length of time, you know I grew up in Nebraska, a little rural town in Nebraska. There were 33 in my graduating class, 12 of us having started kindergarten together, including me and my buddy Marlon. I walked in, I'll never forget my first day in kindergarten. My mom held me by the hand, dropped me up. I remember this. I walked in the door, and there's Marlon sitting over there. Hey, Carrie, over here. Five-year-old boys sitting there together. Trouble. <laughs> Except I had a kindergarten teacher named Mrs. Lariger. Mrs. Lariger. She was a, a common spirit with Miss Agatha Trunchbull of Matilda fame, if you've watched that. If she did nothing but stand erect, she would have commanded power and fear in the lives of five-year-old boys. 
every mid-morning, it was a half hour or a half day sun, uh, kindergarten, every mid-morning about 10.30, she would leave the room and go down to the kitchen to get the little mid-morning snacks, the milk and the cookies. And she would leave with this warning. Children, I want you to put your head on your desk and do not move. Except for me and Marlon. <laughs> you can't expect five-year-old boys to remain angelic-like in their seat while there's no adult in the room. Now, we learned early on that when Mrs. Lareger or any teacher said, I will return, she meant it. And it took us a little while to figure out that she wore combat boots and you could hear the clip-clop, clip-clop of her returning on the wooden floors of our old school that gave us enough time to return to our desks and as the door opened and her enlarged figure showed up in the doorway, we were putting our heads back down on our desk. We had it down to a fine art. Because when she said she was going to return, she meant it. You could expect it. Now, I don't want to compare our glorious God to Mrs. LaReacher, except for this thing. When Jesus said that he was going to return, he meant it. The darkness is almost gone. The day is just about here. Jesus is coming again. And that's the incentive. Oh, no man anything, but, but love him. Engage this world with agape love, with Christ-like love. It's what the world needs. And no unbeliever can do that. This is only for believers in Jesus Christ. No believer can love with that kind of love. And only a Christian who's walking in the power of the Holy Spirit can love that way. Love. Now, Paul gives us three exhortations, three things that should characterize a believer who's living in light of these truths, in light of the soon return of the Lord. The last part of verse 12 says, Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness. That's the first one. Lay aside the deeds of darkness. In other words, stop sinning. You're children of light. Like Paul is saying, come on, let's wake up. Let's get, let's get over these things. Stop sinning. Live like it. Real quickly, if you want to turn over with me to Ephesians chapter 5, or I'll just read it, but Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, he says very similar things. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us and offering a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Verse 5 says, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and God. So, verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So, so walk as children of the light. Walk as children of the light. 
Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness. Another passage similar, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul will say the same thing. Let me read it to you. Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And while people are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, you're not in the darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief. For you are the children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night of darkness. So then, let's not sleep as others do. Let's be alert and sober. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let's be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining this deliverance through Jesus Christ. We are of the day. We are children of light. Time is running out. Let's live like children of light. The second exhortation back in Romans chapter 13, he says, and put on the armor of light. Let aside the deeds of aside the deeds of darkness, and put on the armor of light. It hearkens to the idea of a spiritual war that we are in, and we are engaged in. What Paul said in Romans chapter 6, we won't take the time to turn there, but stand firm, putting on the full armor of God, because our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the, the spiritual forces of darkness, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, the cosmokratetos, the world forces of darkness put on the armor of light make use of the spiritual provisions given to us by God and the third thing he says in verse 13 is and let us behave properly as in the day not in carousing and drunkenness not in sexual promiscuity or sensuality not in strife and jealousy and once again I would have to say you won't you, you want to know what a Christian is capable of doing read everything that we're told not to do It'll give you a pretty good idea of what we're capable of doing. Yes, Christians can act just like the world. And Paul is saying, come on, come on, come on. Wake up. It's time to arouse from sleepiness. Be alert. Be prepared. Look, the, the darkness is almost gone. The day is just about to dawn. The heavens are going to open. Christ is going to return. What manner of men and women ought we to be? We need to love people. What could be more reasonable? What could be more sensible than to say, stop sinning. Let's get our spiritual life in order. Let's get serious about this thing called the Christian life. I mean, what could be more sensible, more reasonable, knowing that the, 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 the time is almost near for Christ to return. Now, there is one problem, one little sticky issue, and I'll go back to it in Romans chapter 7, where Paul said, the good I want to do, I don't. I do the very thing I hate, O wretched man that I am. You see, the problem is for me to stop sinning, to live this way, to begin to, to live as children of the light, I, the fact of the matter is, in and of myself, I can't do that. 
I can't do that. And if I try, I'll eventually maybe make some headway, but I'll eventually fall back because I cannot do that. And so Paul ends this little paragraph of Romans chapter 13 with the power source, verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. So here's the power to make this all happen, to live as children of the light. We put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and he uses this metaphor of putting on a robe, wrapping ourselves up with Jesus. It's a deliberate act of the will to, to arm ourselves with the power of Christ who dwells within me. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. We wrap ourselves, we arm ourselves, and it's as simple, I think, as saying, without oversimplifying a very complicated and complex concept, but I think it's as simple as saying, when we get up in the morning and we dress ourselves with our clothes, we put on Jesus and we say, Lord Jesus, I am going out into a world of darkness today as a child of the light, as your representative in this world. And they need to see me. They need to see the robe, the garment. What they see needs to be you. And so, Lord Jesus, would you live your life through me? Guard my thinking. Guard my mind. Help me to live for you, Jesus. I'm, gonna, I'm putting you on this morning. Empower me to live. That's what it comes down to. If people see me, they're going to see a mess. If people see Jesus, they're going to see love and light. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the positive. The negative statement is, and make no provision for the, for the flesh. The word there, make no provision, is a word that also literally can have the idea of give no prethought, no forethought. In other words, we, we have to... We have to be mindful. That we've said oftentimes here that Christian life is won or lost right between the ears. We get up in the morning, we say, okay, I'm going to put you on. It's a, it's a deliberate act of, the, of our mind, of our will to move out into this world with the love of Jesus. It's his love, not mine. It's a fruit of the Spirit, not mine. But having said that, we must give no pre-thought or planning to the deeds of the flesh. In other words, I think it has the idea, as Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1.13, gird your minds for action. Ask yourself, wh where are you most vulnerable to the wiles of the devil? What trips you up the quickest, the fastest? Where are you most likely to be foiled by the evil one? How can you guard against it? You got a trouble with roaming eyes of lust? Might not be a good idea to take a vacation on the beach then. Right? All Paul is saying is get smart. For Pete's sake, you've got a mind, use it. <laughs> Figure this out. Give no forethought to the flesh. Struggle with alcohol? Probably a good idea to stay away from the sports bar during football season or any sign. Right? Right? Common sense here. You struggle with anger, depression by watching the events of the news or, or reading the stuff on your Facebook account? Have you ever thought of shutting it off or pulling the plug on Facebook? 
Get smart. Make no provision for the flesh. Where are we most vulnerable? Where do we understand where Satan can trip us up? That's where we need each other in this. We talk with our, our spouse or our good friend, our roommate. We sit down with our small group, our discipleship group, and say, hey, look, I need some help thinking this through. Take the Christian life seriously, Paul is saying in Romans chapter 13. All these things that he's been talking about in chapter 12 and chapter 13, it's summarized by we need to move out into this world with love. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how it happens. Trust him and trust ourselves to him and make no provision for the flesh. It's what Paul said in 1 Timothy 4, 7. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Look, folks, the darkness is almost over. It's like Paul is saying, hang in there, folks. It's going to get bad, and it's going to get worse. They're going to persecute us. They're going to hate us. It, it's, this is part of being in the darkness. We're not going to change that. But the day is almost here. So whatever you do out in the world, do it with love. People need Jesus. Here's four questions to wrap up. Number one, how awake are we today, spiritually speaking? Are we part of the woke culture, spiritually speaking? Are we reading the events of the day? Are we engaging the conversations with the spiritual awareness that the person I'm talking with may or may not know Jesus, but the most important thing is that they do know Jesus, the most loving thing I can do. Are we aware or are we caught up in the day-to-day -day living without a thought of God? Number two, are we keeping our eyes towards heaven? And if you only have one eye, are you keeping that towards heaven? Are we keeping an awareness that at any moment the imminent return of Christ at any moment, the heavens could open, the trumpet will sound, and Christ will take us home to glory. My mom would always say, she passed away at 96 years old, she said this for, man, ever since I can remember, I can't wait for Jesus to come, can't wait for Jesus to come. I said, you know, Mama, let's let me grow up, you know. <laughs> I can't wait for Jesus to come. And of course, that was all she said when she was in her 80s and 90s. Folks, I can't wait for Jesus to come is not a phrase just for old people. Now, I am an old person, but I mean for those of you who are younger, it's yours too. Are we keeping an eye towards heaven? Thirdly, does a heart of Christ-like love permeate our thinking and our actions towards others? Is that our first response? These people need Jesus. How can I love them? not coddle their sin, not sweep it under the carpet, but before I smash-mouth them and their sin, how can I show them the love of Jesus? When we encounter people, what's our first thought, our first response? Think about it. And finally, are we appropriating God's resources, not our own, to live the Christian life? Am I growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and, and learning how this thing called the Christian life works? Am I taking my Christian life seriously? Do I realize that 
The moment I trusted Christ as my Savior, it was just the beginning of the journey. That wasn't the sum total of it. That just got me in the foot into heaven. Now I can grow in the grace and the knowledge. I can live out a life that honors him here in this world. I can proclaim the excellencies of Christ, and I need the body of Christ to do that. I need to be in the Word. I need to be a part of the, the disciplines of holiness. If you're not in a small group, I encourage you to get in one, a discipleship encounter of some sort. Iron sharpening iron, getting involved in time in the Word, taking seriously and certainly on our knees in prayer and saying, Lord, I want to put you on. I want the world to see you through me. Are we appropriating the resources to live out the Christian life as children of the light? I'm excited knowing that the darkness is almost over. And I'm really excited that the, the day is just about to begin. I do get heavy-hearted thinking about my responsibility to engage this world because I hate, like the next Christian, the stuff that's going on in this world. But people need Jesus. And the only answer, the only answer to the darkness of the day is the light of God's grace found at the cross. It's following Jesus. Let's pray. Father, may you empower us to live for you, incentivize us with the fact that you are, are coming soon. Our salvation is, uh, the, the, the redemption of our bodies is, is nearer today than it has ever been. You're coming again in power and great glory. May we be faithful to proclaim your excellencies to a world that hates us and hates you. That's okay. It's in the grip of the evil one. In the end, we win. We know that. May we act like winners. There's victory in Jesus. May we love people into that same victory. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.